you're taking notes this morning, just make a one and then put 29 zeros after it, if you will. Since 1995, the Hubble Space Telescope has been focused in one tiny spot in the sky, attempting to count the number of galaxies in just one small spot of the Formax constellation. The telescope was upgraded between 2003 and 2004, and again in 2012, with more advanced instrumentation. And so scientists can now count that there are approximately 5,500 galaxies in that one spot. The Cornell Institute in Boston, Massachusetts, which has been monitoring the telescope for the past 25 years, now estimates very conservatively, I might add, that there are 10 trillion galaxies in the universe. And now our galaxy, the Milky Way, the one in which our star, the sun, lives, contains 100 to 200 million stars. And it's considered to be average sized. So if we count the first 100 million stars as a baseline and multiply that number by 10 trillion galaxies in the universe, then we get a number 100 octillion stars. That's one with 29 zeros after it. And that's considered a very conservative estimate, if you will. And no scientist knows for sure. Though there is one in the universe who does know for sure. Because he named every one of them. And so it is with that perspective that we come to our text found in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1 and 2. So if you have a Bible or you have a smart device, you can get there as quickly as possible. While I read from the English Standard Version. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne. And earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All of these things my hand has made. And so all of these things came to be declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble, contrite in spirit, and who trembles at my word. The journey began for me two and a half years ago, and you've heard me talk about it. So I'm going to talk about it once again. We, in the year 2014, as a church family, were introduced to a Gene Getz study Bible, which 
we as a congregation committed to read through in the year 2014 with a reading plan. And so in December of that year, I came to the very last reading prescribed in our reading plan, and it was Isaiah chapter 66. It was the final word. That's the title of the sermon. Trust me when I say this, I don't have the final word, nor do I want it. It is God who has the final word. And this is the language of an oracle. When, it, when the scripture says in, at the end of, or at the beginning of verse 2, this is declared by the Lord. It's the Hebrew word for an oracle, which means it's God's direct speech to Isaiah and then to us. That he will have the final word when it's all said and done. Now, you know Isaiah, he was a prophet who prophesied for over 60 years in Jerusalem. He was first a priest, was called from priesthood while he was in the temple going through priestly sort of duties. When he gets his first vision of God, as smoke filled the temple that day, and so for 60 years he prophesied. Now, the Greek word for prophet is prophetes, so it's the same word we've brought into the English language. But the old Hebrew word was nachbi. Nachbi, and it literally meant to boil over. Ah, it's an interesting way to think of the prophets. So full of the Spirit, so driven by the Spirit of God that they just couldn't contain it. And it had to come boiling out of them. And so this is an oracle. And it finishes the long book of prophecy of Isaiah, doesn't it? And there are some who think it probably finished Isaiah. Because remember the tradition was that they sawed him in two. That's not going to happen today. This is a happier occasion. And let me just say, I'm glad you're here. And you're each and every one very special. And if you leave without hugging me today, I'm going to unfriend you on Facebook. <laughs> so there. And uh, so and there are many from a variety of relationships. But a couple of my old uh, college buddies and roommates came in today, and I already gave them $20 bills to keep their mouths shut. <laughs> but we have faith and practice folks here. We have folks that, uh, that in the journey of life were part of Willow Bend at various stages. And, of life. My old seminary buddies are here. My breakfast buddies and some of their family. And I mean, I could just go down the list. And, uh, and my good friend, Roy Austin, who wave Roy, because Roy has been my spiritual director for the last three years and a very 
important processor as I have processed even what, where I am today. Um, so uh, you're much loved. And, and we're very grateful, Deb and I are very grateful for your presence. Even some of her old roommates are here too. Do I need to give you all $20 bills as well? <laughs> yeah, I'm seeing some nodding over there. And can I just say um, that, um, more important than anybody, my beloved wife, Deb, has been a part of this journey. As a matter of fact, we met in this church and in a tent on the parking lot, we celebrated our wedding reception because there was no room in here for that to happen. And, and so uh, it's a little bit uh, nostalgic to have a tent on the parking lot again today. But I want you to know how much um, I, I have loved this woman and have been loved by this woman. That just needed to be said. And uh, just one more mention. Um, uh, you know, the, obviously my kids are not all able to be here because uh, Jim and Rachel couldn't come, come home from Indonesia <laughs> where they're on mission. And uh, some of you may not know that. Um, but they're in their second year uh, there in language school in Indonesia. And, uh, and uh, daughter Jill is right about to give birth and the doctor's not letting her travel. So we had to talk on the phone last night. But uh, son Jess is here and he has a very special company because his fiance is here. <laughs> Sweet Anna. And uh, we're real excited about what's coming there. Okay. So, thank you for being here. And so let's talk about this text. This first verse and the first part of the second verse really tell us several things about God. Number one, that he created everything that is. It says, by his hand... The scripture talks about the fact that it was Theodotic. He spoke it. God said, let there be light. But he did fashion us with his hands. He reached down into the dust of the earth. And then he reached into the side of Adam. But he created everything that is. And we can't even comprehend the vastness of the universe that he created. And secondly, he owns it all. That's pretty much what that statement's saying. Where in the world do you think you're going to build a house for me? <laughs> Heaven is my home. It's my throne. I rule over it all. I made it all, I, and I rule over it all. It's all mine. And it says he doesn't need our help. Does he? He doesn't need my help or your help. 
to accomplish his will and his purpose on the earth. Now, we can choose to love him. And we can choose to serve him. We can choose to whatever he's entrusted us as stewards of all that he owns, you know, to, to make a difference in a world full of hurt, like we talked about last week. But he doesn't need our help. Not really. And he's bigger than any problem or any obstacle that you and I face. He's absolutely bigger than it all. And he alone understands it. Even though we'll be left asking why, why, why. And there's, a, there's one more thing that's really important. This transcendent, sovereign God longs to be imminent. He's looking for a place to dwell, but not a place made with human hands. And so where does he look? This is where I look, he says, to the one who is humble, contrite in spirit, and who trembles at my word. We've talked about humility hundreds of times here because I'm committed to talking about humility. St. Augustine was right when he said there are only three great Christian virtues. And the first is humility. And the second is humility. And the third is humility. Most of you know my story. I came in to will have been through the back door. There was a crisis going on. The pastor at the time was going to have to take a leave of absence. And that man right over there, Noel Golden, was in this back room meeting trying to figure out what are we going to do next Sunday. And he walked out of the room and said, Dave, think you could preach next Sunday? And I said, yes. What I didn't tell Noel was that I hadn't preached hardly at all in about five years, you see, because I'd gone through a really difficult divorce, period of divorce in which I left ministry. And when I came back to ministry, none of the pastors in the association where I was doing student ministry trusted me with their pulpit because I was divorced. And that was in the denomination which I was serving sort of like kind of the death knell. But Noel said, would you preach? And so I did. And then apparently that was a test. And right after that sermon, he said, think you could do one more. (laughs) And, And then it was, we've got Christmas coming up. Could you do a Christmas series? And one thing led to another. But I have to tell you that because of what I went through earlier in my life, that I have looked at everything that God has allowed me to do as a privilege since coming here. And I am humbled to have been given the opportunity to speak the word of God in this place. And that's true. And then God says, I look for someone who is submissive in spirit. (laughs) This is a great word. 
Again, it's one of those kind of Hebrew guttural kind of sounding words. Nache. Submissive. Contrite. With the word ruach, with spirit behind it. But that word submissive, that word for contrition, really, it means broken. In an irreparable kind of sense. It means crippled. It means unable to walk in the Hebrew. There's only one other place in all of Scripture where the word appears, and it's in the book of 2 Samuel, in chapter 4 and again in chapter 9, when it's the word that describes the condition of Mephibosheth. Do you remember the story of Mephibosheth? Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan, who was the son of Saul, who was the king. And when word reached the palace that, that Saul and Jonathan had been killed in battle, the nursemaid of, of Mephibosheth scooped him up in her arms to run from the palace, fearing that he would be next to die by the sword. And as she's running from the palace, she trips and she falls on this four or five-year-old little boy. And he's left mangled and crippled for the rest of his life. And there's a new king. David might well have decided to get rid of him because it was the standard procedure to wipe out any of a predecessor's entire family just in case they might at some point get ambitious for the throne. And so David begins to ask around, is there, are, there any, are there any descendants, any other ancestry of, of Saul and Jonathan? And this one is brought to him. And Mephibosheth comes in expecting, expecting to get the axe that day, falling on his face in terror before David. And David gives him back all of Saul and Jonathan's land and possessions, all of the family land. And he, he assigns a, a man by the name of Ziba, who had been a servant of Saul, to take care of Mephibosheth. And then he, he says to him, and not a day will go by that you don't eat your dinner at my table. He's the picture of grace. Brokenness. And grace. And there was a time, you see, when Ziba, who was a sly one, when Absalom rebelled against his father and, and David had to flee Jerusalem. You remember that Ziba, Ziba betrayed Mephibosheth by, you know, by taking his, you know, his animals and, and, and riding off with Saul, and, and, I mean, riding off with David and, and telling David that, that Mephibosheth had committed treason he he'd gone over to the other side and so there's a story in chapter 19 of second samuel where where david is finally back in jerusalem and mathibosheth shows up and he's he's unwashed he's unbathed and unshaven for for weeks and months well because ziba had, had abandoned him right 
And he comes back before David. And he defends his honor to David. And the land that David had taken away from him and given to Ziba. David, in his grief, you know, through tears of his own grief over the loss of Absalom, he, he says to Mephibosheth, here, you, you take half and Ziba take half. And what does Mephibosheth say? Let him have it all. Did you see what just happened? He stood up. He stood up. Folks, this church is a healing place. For folks that are submissive, contrite in spirit. Now, we may not get physically healed. That'll happen one day. Sharon and I were talking before the service. She lost her sis just this morning. Who'd been who'd been ill, all kinds of physical problems. And, and she's now united with the Lord because she was, she was a Christ follower. Right, Sharon? So she's with the Lord and she's healed now. She's whole now. And we may not get physical wholeness here, but we'll get spiritual wholeness. We get, if we are submissive in spirit, there's healing. This is a healing place. For a while, I carried some guilt that I had to work through my stuff while I was being your pastor. <laughs> you know, like I really felt guilty about all the stuff that I had to be dealing with in my uh, incredible, codependent, people-pleasing past. Then I realized I'm right where God wanted me. To be in a place where healing could happen. <clears throat> Because, folks, this is a healing place. I'm proud to say it's a humble place and it's a healing place. And my hope of all hopes that it'll continue to be a place that trembles at the Word of God. That trembles at the Word of God. A couple of years ago, and uh, Coop and Don Jones will remember this. We're in Ecuador uh, doing some, some uh, seminars for business leaders in, uh, in Ecuador and, and demonstrating um, biosand water filtration, uh, you know, wherever they would let us go uh, to do that. And, and it just so happens that on uh, the Friday night we were there, there was this big concert at the, at the Civic Center in Redelay. No, what was the name of that? What was the name of that town? Don Jones? Guayaquil, big city of Guayaquil, um, and uh, and the concert was uh, um, it was Paul Wilbur, and you know may not remember Paul Wilbur, but when we launched uh, in this church about four years ago, the Jewish Fellowship on Saturday morning, the Jewish Church, um, Bessar Shalom, which hopefully a few of you guys are here. I see our Plano One Korean church is here with us today. Wahoo, you know what I'm saying? But we we have two churches that share these facilities with us. And one of them is the Korean Fellowship and one of them is uh, Bessar Shalom on Saturday. And so Paul Wilbur had launched, had come and had helped us launch that church plant some years ago. So we heard that Paul Wilbur was doing this big concert in, uh, in, in uh, Guayaquil in Ecuador and we were invited to go. And so we 
we come in, you know, to this huge auditorium and it probably seated like 20,000 people, 14 to 20,000, I don't know. And we're sitting about halfway back and they've given us a program and we're sitting there and, uh, and, but Paul Wilbur hears that we're there through someone from the, this, the church there. And so Paul Wilbur invites us back backstage to just to kind of have a few moments with him, have prayer with him and before the concert. Then he wants to sit us in the VIP sitting right there at the front. So here we are. We're, we're escorted out to about the third row. And, uh, and, uh, and, and fortunately, I'm sitting right next to Don Jones because Don Jones, you realize, has uh, spent the, about the last 10 years at Guitar Center buying uh, sound equipment. Uh, Don has this thing about sound equipment, all right? And uh, he's got this studio in his home and everything like that where he can record. And, uh, and so he really, he's got a, a great deal of affection for anything that has to do with amplification and sound. So I'm sitting next to Don, and Don just, we're like 25 feet away where we're easily very visible, can see uh, all the speakers that have been set up for the concert. And Don is just saying, well, that's a, and he's describing what it is, blah, blah, blah. You know, and in his brain, he's adding it up. He's going, you know, well, you know, we're like 25 feet from uh, 2,000 watts of, uh, of uh, power right there. Now, just so, as a reference point, I asked Stuart Stevenson how much we can amplify in here. We can get 300 watts on a good day. And some of you complain about how loud the music is. We don't, we don't even have it cranked up. But let, let me just tell you that we're sitting at this concert, and when the music started, I'm grabbing my program, and I'm biting off pieces of it and chewing it up so I can stuff it in my ears. You know, like two and three layers. I, I have never been moved in the way I was moved <laughs> that night. I mean, literally, right, Don? Coop? We, every part of my body was vibrating. And there was, a, like, there was a bass woofer like 25 feet away. It was like big as a car, right? You know, like that. I'm saying, and when I think of that experience, I think about what Isaiah said there. That's who I look for, someone who trembles, who's vibrated, who's moved by the Word of God. Moved by the Word of God. In my prayer for Willowbend Church going forward, my prayer for Deb and I as well, that we would join you in this, that you would be a people who understand what humility is. I'm just going to tell you, I probably learned more by humiliation than by choosing humility. In my life. But my prayer for every one of us is that you would learn humility, submission in spirit, and that you would tremble, that you would be moved by the Word of God. Because that's where God says, that's where I choose to dwell. That's where I choose to dwell. I am transcendent God. But I long to be eminent and present among my people when they are humble, submissive in spirit, 
devoted to, moved by the Word of God.